Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. And I'm Pete Wright, and nothing surprises me. (laughs) Today we are talking about Minute 23, which begins with Steve's inquiry and ends with Nick's inquiry. Uh, back on the show from last week, it's author Ryan Dalton. Hello again, Ryan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, guys. Happy to be back. Uh, yes, last week we were talking uh, the intro of Hulk, and here we have where we're jumping in with Steve Rogers uh, from actually this from our cutscene that we had at the very end of Captain America: The First Avenger. So, having seen a version of this in the last um, film, um, was it weird to kind of have? the scene playing out again for you or did you think anything of it at the time uh no i thought it was a good way to bring in people who maybe were newbies and maybe hadn't seen the uh the other movies as i know they were rare but it's funny when when i was watching this this scene again it made me flash back to i had uh a friend who went and saw the avengers and had not watched a single marvel movie before the Avengers. Oh. <laughs> and she commented to me after that she was like, oh, that was interesting that they pulled that guy out of ice, I guess. And uh, and, and, <laughs> and uh, it's funny because I just, I had been, I was so into what Marvel was doing at that point. And I, you know, just been kind of like eat, eating and sleeping all, all the different Marvel movies. And I, I kind of paused as I was just like, I almost couldn't process what she was saying. <laughs> and I was like, and she started laughing. She said, you look so offended. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry. I just don't get how you can go to the culmination ensemble team movie and not having seen any of the rest of them and uh and so i explained to her a little bit some of the backstory and i was like you should go watch the movie it's pretty good but yeah so this always makes me me think of that um but yeah i think for someone like that probably a good idea that they take a couple minutes to reintroduce him yeah yeah no kidding do you like uh this introduction of of steve here as uh i mean last time we saw him other than the very end of uh, First Avenger, I mean, he was this, you know, 1940s uh, hero, um, and now he's living in 2012. I mean, do you like the way that Chris Evans plays the character? Uh, I enjoy it, yeah. Um, he still seems a little bit battle-weary uh, uh, to me, and I, and I think it's because he's probably overwhelmed by just, like, the new world and everything that he's learning and things. And one of the reasons that I picked this minute and the next minute is similar to why I picked the other two minutes that I, I was with you guys, is I, I also love, again, the contrast of getting to see these different heroes sort of in their own world and their own flavor at first. Uh, and I love the contrast and seeing them come together later, because here it's very, you know, he's in that old-style boxing gym. It's very Earth-tony and uh, um, just, you know, very, very very vintage looking and i love that that's still kind of what he's surrounding himself with and it feels like he's it feels like he's this old soldier that they're pulling into this this new world still uh so yeah i liked it i I feel like his performance as well as the environment they surrounded him with did a good job of introducing him again i mean he's still wearing cotton i mean he could be wearing something (laughs) that wicks wicks the moisture away better but no it's like he's you need a blend man (laughs) 
<laughs> Cap, they make Under Armour. Come on, man. <laughs> Synthetics are everything now. Uh, and, and what about Nick Fury? I mean, this is our first chance to talk with uh, talk to you about Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. Do you like his portrayal of this character? Yeah, I love it. And I love that he's a slightly different flavor of Nick Fury with every every one of them that he's dealing with. Uh, you know, with Tony, he's essentially like a Pulp Fiction version of, <laughs> uh, of, of Nick Fury. You know, he's louder, he's, you know, snarkier, he's in Tony's face. But with Cap, he's very understated uh, and, and muted, at least at this point. And it, I don't know if it's just because he's being a little bit you know, just gentle with Cap, or if there's a, a respect or almost a reverence there, kind of like Coulson has with him. Or, but yeah, his vibe with, with with Steve is very different than it is with Tony or Natasha or anything like that. And, and I, I like seeing that too, because the way he treats the different heroes, I think, also kind of gets us in the vibe of of what's going on with those heroes too. That's an interesting point that I hadn't really thought about a, a whole lot, but the, the the tone of Fury as he kind of talks to these different people, and it did make me wonder, like, is this the first time that he's actually kind of had a conversation with him or visited him since that incident at the end of the last movie where um, he kind of introduces him to the modern world, so to speak, on, on Broadway? Uh, like, do you feel like they've had much conversation since then? Um yeah, I probably, but I think it's hard to shake the the reverence that comes with like the old soldier vibe. Like I I really get the feeling that Fury respects this guy as a legit war hero. And that's I, I think important. This is a, a pitch as much as a, a you know an assignment, right? It's like you're we know what you've been through, and if you still stand for all those same things. We'll we'll take your your support and your leadership here. But I I don't get the feeling that he expects Cap to say yes. I think he's he's really trying to to use the respect that he has for for Cap and what he's done, what he he did and what he has experienced being on the ice for 70 years to to actually, you know, bring him to the fore and and let that happen. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I still feel like he's this is. You know what it is? This is Fury fanboying in his own way. Uh, you know, the same thing we get from Coulson in his very nerdy fanboying way, right? Later. Yeah, and it, it's interesting that he, you know, the implication is that this is the first actual mission that they're pulling Steve into after kind of letting him warm up to what's happened and everything. And Warm up? I see what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, that was, I wish I could say I did that on purpose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but it's, it's interesting to me that it's like they didn't, Fury didn't pull him in until it was literal war, world ending stakes. Yeah, um, right, right. So yeah, which could also speak to the fact that he's like, for one, he wanted to give Steve time to acclimate. And for another, maybe, yeah, his respect for and feelings about Steve were like, okay, I don't want your first mission with S.H.I.E.L.D. to be something that is meaningless or tiny or forgettable. It, you know, so we're going to pull you in when the world's in danger yeah yeah it's interesting what uh, what is the t the timeline for what is the andy timeline review please yeah, yeah. The timeline timeline check. <laughs> sure <laughs> he is pulled out of the ice from the time he's pulled out of the ice to the time we see him in the gym how long how much time has passed uh he's pulled out of the ice october 7th uh 2011 
And he wakes up the next day on the 8th. And then the day after that, uh, so this would be the day after he's had his conversation with Steve, he's sent to stay at the retreat, which we never see, but there's a conversation in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. when they go to this. This is this cabin out in the middle of nowhere that Bruce had built as a place to kind of just hide away from the world. And that would have been the ninth. And that's when he went to stay. They they say in the show he spent a few weeks here after he defrosted. So technically he was here for a few weeks. And then uh, 2012, right now, uh, we're on May 2nd, 2012 right now. So, uh, yeah, so this is uh, six months. Yeah, it's it's been a while. So he was there for a few weeks and now he's just been, I guess, trying to adapt to modern life uh, in New York. Um, I mean, it seems like they might have found like small town America to maybe uh, have him settle for yeah. a little while <laughs> rather than New York. But who knows? I mean, he's a Brooklyn guy. Maybe he just felt like he wanted to be there. Yeah. And uh, and I mean, we don't really know much other than this. And so it's it's an opportunity. I mean, we, you know, in our last couple of episodes, we will have talked a little bit about a um, a deleted scene that had happened with him trying to kind of get a sense of his place in the world and everything. So, I mean, there is a little bit of that, but I, I you know, I think there's just a thing where, I mean, you know, you're gone for 70 years and suddenly the world's totally different. Everyone you know is dead and you're really just trying to figure out you know, what this place is. So I think... Well, and I think there were a lot of jokes that I that I was sort of queuing up about how world-ending stakes happen to happen three days after you're pulled out of the ice from 70 years. It actually is refreshing <laughs> that they gave him six months before the world-ending stakes occurred. Yeah, right. That's, yeah. That actually makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, feels a little better. Yeah. Um, I And, you know, I, I like the way that there is this sense with Steve where... He, you know, he wasn't, um, I mean, he was in the military for a few years in the, in the course of the last film, but there is that still that sense in his head. Like as he's talking to Nick, he's still calling him sir. He kind of still has this sense of the roles, even though he's not really recruited into anything. It's just, you know, when you're, when you have that mindset, you kind of view the world that way. And so Nick is coming, he's talking to him and he calls him sir. I like the way that this character plays in these moments, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Although, to be fair, I mean, he was using Sir when he was still tiny, Steve. Like, he just is <laughs> such a, a military fanboy that that was always his vibe. <laughs> so he's still Steve in there, you know, he uh, uh, under all the muscles and, uh, you know, uh, under all the weight of his history. He's, he's still that guy. So, yeah, I think the little, little details like that about the interaction are really nice. Yeah. Um, after the moment when uh, Fury says trying to save it, that's actually the end of the cutscene because then it jumps into that kind of funky trailer for the Avengers. Uh, and so everything with the rest of the scene is new. And what I what I found interesting, so we get Nick passing this folder with Tesseract information over to Steve to look at. And what the first thing that I noticed is that on the paperwork, it actually says level seven. Uh, and we talked about this <laughs> earlier in the season about when, when Fury says, oh, you know, this is level seven and everybody looks shocked and worried because it sounded like a DEFCON sort of thing. But it's actually a security level of the situation. And so apparently this whole thing with Loki is important enough where you have to be level seven to even talk about it, which is funny because Steve is actually level six, according to the Marvel wiki. I don't know if this means that um, if he is going to be part of this thing that he is now level seven or the other read that I had on this is like, you know, 
Steve is probably the only person alive who actually knows about the Tesseract, has seen it in action. So perhaps Nick says, you know what, I'm going to show him this level seven paperwork because he's the only person who actually would know what it is. And if he says no, I'm not showing him anything new. It's stuff that he already is aware of, you know. This is the problem with classified documents, Andy. I think de facto. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Bringing modern day politics into the show. <laughs> I think what happened is that by just showing a level six, some level seven documents makes the person a level seven. I think that's how it works. It's like immediate transference of levels. That's how that's how it happened with Maria. It's how it happened with, I, you know, it's how it happens with everybody. So you're saying Fury just discovered he had those papers like somewhere in his closet, right? Then he's like, oh, yeah, they were in his his library. Yeah, I forgot these were here. I'll show them to Steve. (laughs) That's right. right. And what we don't see is there's a person right outside the gym who has a new badge for Steve. That's level seven. (laughs) That's right. You've been upgraded. Well, that's what's funny, because at this point, you know, it's now now I'm rethinking everything because it's been six months. Is is Steve even enlisted in this man's army like is he even a or is he still just sort of a science project like he's not probably wasn't on the payroll after 70 years does he have any clearance at all at this point is this the moment he's re-engaged and you know are we to assume he's just been recovering and not doing anything for the last six months i feel Yes. Um, but I mean, and that's actually interesting because to the point of like, you know, has he been getting paid? It's like, I feel like they probably feel somewhat responsible. Like this is this person who saved us from this bomb. And, you know, we're going to put him on payroll of sorts for something, you know, just to be a consultant sort of thing, even if they're not actually having those conversations with him, because at some point they hope to be having those conversations with him, you right. know? Because you know somebody in S.H.I.E.L.D. payroll is like 70 what now? <laughs> We're not calculating back pay, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's probably a combination of like, yeah, he's he's a legend, so they're going to want to keep him close. Some bean counter was probably like, are we really going to put this guy on the payroll? And then others were like, it's Captain America. Yes, we're going to we're going to put him on the payroll. <laughs> we're going to give him time. And it, you you can imagine someone like Nick would immediately be making plans for what he wants from Steve, but would also be saying, okay, we're going to give you time to to get ready before I try to do this vision that I have for you. Yeah, right. Although it would have been really funny if we saw him working at Baskin Robbins. He could have had some great conversations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You could he see could people be. talking about him like, look, Dylan, <laughs> this guy collects heavy bags. Don't mess around with the mint chip. <laughs> He could be uh, Scott Lang's assistant manager, uh, his boss. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what they all, they're all doing. Um, on this Tesseract printout, I also liked that it seems to be on helicarrier letterhead, which made me laugh. <laughs> it's got shield helicarrier on it. Well, there's just, a business office level on the helicarrier. You don't really see it. but uh, Exactly. They don't, they don't show that. You know, the, the other thing is, you know, this whole idea of, of him is like, um, I don't know, the Tesseract, the whole thing with this object and trying to figure out what it does. I mean, I, it's kind of a retroactive working of this whole thing as far as this conversation, because obviously there's work done with the Tesseract in the 80s, which we'll see in Captain Marvel that doesn't really play into it here. But this idea of 
what it can do, what they're trying to, you know, what they think it can do. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't have issues, I guess, with the way that the conversations play because all of this is put together before Captain Marvel came to be. But I do wonder just about the, the sense of the way that the scene plays as far as the uses of the Tesseract. Are we, do we feel that Nick is being truthful in, in the way that he's talking about the Tesseract? Um, knowing, I guess, what, what happens later in the film as far as phase two, or do you think that he's, uh, like, are they also looking for energy, I guess? You know, what's, what's the, what's your sense on the way, on his pitch, I guess? I think that's a really great question because it was only just now watching this minute together that I, I realized, oh, I think they were trying to make, to maybe make this an environmental mission, uh, like this, (laughs) and, and I, I feel like we know already as astute viewers of the MCU, that that's not Fury's ultimate goal. Probably would be a nice to have, but is something that would motivate Cap. That's my take. He's still, he's strategically manipulating the facts. Yeah, I would always expect Nick and S.H.I.E.L.D. to operate on multiple levels. Um, And also he would probably know, okay, if we put out this thought about energy, Cap's going to talk to Tony, Tony Stark at some point, who we know is all about energy. And so if we tell them all the same story when they talk, you know, that that's going to seem more plausible because we've told them all we're interested in energy. But clearly somebody who is in, you know, any government <laughs> who hears unlimited energy is also going to hear unlimited weapons. So, yeah, I, I, I think he's playing 3D chess here. But and I guess that's why I'm asking this question, because of all the people that Nick could be having this um, filtered conversation with, it's Steve Rogers who saw Tesseract weapons in use when the Hydra agents were wielding them. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. like he's the one person who knows that it can be used as a weapon. And so that's I I guess that's that's where I, I, I kind of wonder if this approach with Steve was the right one to take. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is that the way Evans plays it, there's no sense, or at least the way it was directed, there's no sense that he is sharing that awareness, that he was just in a whole movie about the destructive power of the Tesseract. He saw this thing burn a hole through the floor of an airplane and fall to the ocean, and he never makes any note that, oh, yeah, I know you just said unlimited energy, but also blue goo gun guy like we've been down this road like maybe he this would have been an opportunity to push back a little bit or at least be aware or is that what we're supposed to get by the fact that he stands up and walks away he kind of ghosts fury right there in the in the gym like just it's you know we'll we'll see i I wonder what he says in the next minute as he walks out the door it's a mystery how he feels it is a mystery but it's not it it's it's not let's just say it's it's not uh rah rah nick i'm on team tesseract and maybe it's a remnant of kind of the time he came from where he doesn't have to second guess as much the motivations of the people that are kind of running the show. I, I don't know. Yeah. It, you, you could argue that from some different angles, maybe like, um, but uh, yeah, it is an interesting point for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's, it struck me as interesting, especially because, uh, and to your point, Pete, both of them probably know that the other person would know about these things. Cause. And 
Yeah. I mean, Steve was there as they were bringing Tesseract weapons back from the field to Howard Stark and the SSR. So theoretically, he would assume that if SSR became S.H.I.E.L.D., that S.H.I.E.L.D. probably now has those and has studied those. Right. And Nick would know that. So it's almost like they both are aware that that whole element is aware, but somehow neither of them are bringing it up into this conversation. I, I, I didn't even it, know that I had a problem with this until you brought it up. <laughs> jerk. Look, now I hate it because I think I think Cap is the guy who pushes back on untruths. And wouldn't he have taken the opportunity if he really did know all this stuff and had put all the calculus together in his head? Wouldn't he have been the guy that says you're uh, not not being straight with me? Mm-hmm. Well, we we see him doing that in Winter Soldier. Yes. So I wonder if he, <laughs> we if had he to could, bury it for a few movies. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you could look at it as almost part of his character arc. Like maybe he's still getting used to this new age of where everyone operates in the moral gray. Yeah. Um, and where, you know, e- even the, the good guys are ambiguous, you know, and uh, so he's just it, choosing it, not to participate in this in this way. Well. And I, I mean, I guess that it does come up a little bit later in this film as as he discovers the phase two weapons and everything. Right. Um, mm-hmm. right. So it's obviously there, but it just I don't know. I guess it just struck me funny watching it this time, feeling like that is a point that both of them would want to address at this point as the, as Nick is trying to recruit him in to work with them. Maybe at this point, Steve's just a touch naive about it. And maybe maybe at the point he's assuming like, well, you know, that they would that they would have the right motivations for it. But discovers later on when he sees the weapons that maybe it's not totally altruistic. Well, and I I like your point about him as this character who saw the government in a different way coming from the 40s. And this is really maybe the first time that he's being introduced to the shadier dealings of uh, governmental organizations and getting, uh, you know, brought into it in a way that, uh, you know, some hard, hard truths that he's going to have to learn over the course of the story. Mm -hmm. For sure. So on this paperwork, um, I I thought it was interesting. We see the WGS 84 model of earth, uh, which is a thing. It is a a real way of, of showing the earth. But also on this paperwork, it has this. It says, note that the energy intervals for the dominant elements C, N, and O all differ somewhat from the nominal values of 10 to 15 MeV slash NUC, and that the relative abundance of the contributing elements depends on the source of the particles. I was really impressed when I read that on this paperwork going, I really, their props department was coming up with some (laughs) fantastic language here. And then I found this on NASA's Space Physics Data Facility website, which made me laugh. This exact paragraph. So basically, this is just like a cut and paste (laughs) document using some NASA language that they already have out there. Science word. Put science words on there. It'll be enough. NASA knows everything. Just do what they say. (laughs) Yep, yep. Well, they were working with NASA, as we know, so uh, made me laugh. That's funny. And then on the second page of the Tesseract information, they have a photo of the Tesseract, and but for the life of me, I could not figure out what it's, uh, I don't know, was sitting on? Like, it's it's propped on some Hydra equipment of some sort, but it's like, when would they have ever taken this photo? It just struck me strange that they have a photo of the Tesseract in, in action, question mark, on some sort of Hydra machine. And it just, it's, I don't know, it was a weird 
thing to choose as a photo of the Tesseract in action, I guess. I don't know. Did either of you think anything of that photo? What does it mean to have a Tesseract in action? (laughs) Well, yeah. Glowing. (laughs) Glowing aggressively. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't uh, I mean, if you're going to go the whole spy manipulation thing, maybe he chose a photo he knew would resonate with Steve. For sure. Certainly a lot of Hydra imagery on that page, so that would make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Well, all right. We got this whole... um, Unlimited sustainable energy bit. And I, you know, I chuckled at that. We, we've talked about it a little bit, but part of me always goes to this whole idea of urban legends as far as that whole idea of unlimited sustainable energy. And the fact that S.H.I.E.L.D. is latching onto it just kind of made me laugh this time as I was watching that because I'm like, ah, it's always the old urban legend of something like the battery that never dies sort of thing. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I guess that's the Space Stone thing. You know, it's the same thing as an urban legend. Why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> comic comic book magic yeah i mean comic book exactly 100 <laughs> percent. yeah and then and then you know just down the road when you you find out what's inside the cube and everything you know you you know it's it it could you know ex, ex, you know in quotes explain it a little more why it's <laughs> inexhaustible energy but uh well that and that's actually a weird thing because on that paper that had some of that that science the nasa text it also has and you can't read it all because it's covered up by the photo but it has these uh phrases to the will of the sentient beings user can alter all reality and i was like how would they know all of this about the Tesseract? Like, I don't know. I guess that's just a sense of different tests that they had been doing over time. But I thought that was interesting that those specific phrases were written on this paperwork. That's interesting. I wonder if they still, because really that's not what it does. Um, No, yeah. That's that's like Loki's staff is what you'd be saying those things about, right? Or the, um, isn't it, wouldn't it be the the ether that becomes the... uh, the the reality gem but well you know it's it's early days of marvel movies <laughs> yeah maybe they were just throwing a lot of stuff on there and be like this this is jargony and we, we hadn't uh, so thoroughly yeah. retconned a lot of the stones in favor mm-hmm. of the infinity we're, saga but we're right. getting there that's yeah. it exactly it. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. uh we have a fantastic joke with the punching bag um i i still think it works brilliantly every time i see it it makes me laugh it does seem a little too light when Chris Evans picks it up, but it's still, it works so exceptionally, the visual of it, as he goes over and you see a whole row of punching bags on the <laughs> ground, and then he just kind of casually throws one over his shoulder. Like, that gag is just uh, just spot-on perfect as far as putting it together. Absolutely. And I love how it implies that that was such a problem that they already have just arranged, just bring him a bunch of punching bags and that they, they all take it for granted. I mean, Fury doesn't even comment on it. So it's clearly just one of his things. Yeah, absolutely. So funny. Well, we're ending, we're ending this minute with uh, Fury, uh, this whole thing. I mean, we've talked a little bit about Loki and talking about Loki and the whole thing. Nothing would surprise me. Ten bucks says you're wrong, which is a great setup. Great setup, by the way, for a, a little silent silent movie gag later on. Yes. Um, then we find out that apparently Nick kind of has already decided that Steve is going to be a part of this. Like, they, there's not really a confirmation about any of that, either, even though Steve has that, you hear with a mission, sir, Fury says, I am, as, you know, kind of a recruitment. But then Fury says, you know, there's a debriefing pack waiting back at your apartment. And then the whole conversation, is there anything you can tell us about the Tesseract? We'll finish that conversation tomorrow. But, I mean, I 
I think that I'm, I enjoy the relationship between these two. And to your point earlier, uh, Ryan, I think that it's, it's nice to see how Nick kind of, um, plays his, uh, his conversational style as he's talking with Steve through the course of this scene. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. D- like I said, a very, very different vibe than just with the other people, a little more differential asking him for information, almost sort of half- halfway asking permission for things. And uh, yeah, it, it's just, it's really, it's, and again, one of those things they never shine a light on. You just kind of got to contrast it with how he is with other people and be like, Oh yeah, this is deliberate. Yeah. Are you as in like what is your just before we do it because this is our our uh, in terms of cap are you as in the bag for cap as you are for Hulk? Oh yeah, well, as far as uh, reading the comics, I'd say Cap's probably my my favorite Marvel hero. Oh, and he became so actually kind of accidentally. I was um, there was a a thing I was doing with. Uh, Phoenix Comic Con, I was holding on to this huge Captain America omnibus that was going to be a prize for something. And I had it for weeks. So I thought, well, I might as well read it. <laughs> and it was the uh, <laughs> it was the start of the whole Ed Brubaker run that included the Winter Soldier and a lot of the things that, that got adapted to the MCU. And I'm reading through it. And I had never read much of Cap, you know, apart from uh, just ensemble stuff. Um, but I'm reading through this and I'm like, this is really good. I mean, really good. And they made Cap a compelling character in a way that I never would have expected. Uh, and I came through that omnibus. I bought the next omnibus and read through that. And uh, it was slowly dawned on me, like, I think this is my favorite character. This is awesome. There was just so much depth. And so, yeah, seeing seeing him also realized on screen in a way that I thought was really good was quite a thrill. Awesome. I, I think he's an interesting character. I've read very little of Captain America in the comics, and I feel like that's a hole that I should fill at some point, because I do find him to be a compelling yeah. character. And I read know the he's Brubaker gone through stuff. phases. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's what I've heard. Uh, um, because there's certainly some different periods where it's like, eh, maybe not maybe yeah. about those ones <laughs> as much. But <laughs> Yeah, those are really good. And I would say Brubaker from that all the way through the point, uh, up into the point where, um, where Bucky uh, becomes uh, Captain America for a while, because there's some really great payoffs in that run as well. Uh, so yeah, just the Brubaker, I, I feel like really understands that world and those characters and really gets them and, and is good at adding uh, a, a lot of depth. Awesome. Well, it seems like a great place to end our conversation today. Uh, so, Ryan, uh, remind everybody about your books again. Sure, yeah. Uh, so, it's the Time Shift Trilogy was my first trilogy. There's a series of time travel mysteries. First one is called The Year of Lightning. Uh, and then my most recent book, which is uh, on bookstore shelves now, is called This Last Adventure, uh, which features a boy using using storytelling to try to save his grandfather's memories from Alzheimer's. Um, and uh, yeah, that that's a brand new release. So if it's not in the bookstore, they can order it for you just wherever you like to buy books. Fantastic. Well, check it out. We'll have the links in the show notes. And if you can't see those in your podcatcher, uh, go to our website, marvelmovieminute.com, and you can see all the show notes there. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with Ryan again to talk about Minute 24. So Pete, thanks as always. Tomorrow, we'll see if I'm part of the Brubaker run. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. 
Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Our show.